here, I believe, right now, uh, worshiping with us this morning. Really grateful for you guys. <clears throat> and uh, they'll have a celebration at the Troy campus Thursday night. It's a wonderful experience of worship and hearing testimonies of all that God has done on Thursday night. And uh, let's pray throughout the week that God would move in powerful ways in the hearts of students um, and in the hearts of those that they're serving throughout the week. Um, okay, asking for a friend. We're beginning this uh, brief summer sermon series. And uh, so several months ago, through our social media pages, we fielded questions from all sorts of people, from believers, from non-believers. We fielded questions that whoever uh, struggle with related to the Christian faith. And then we condensed all these questions down, trying to figure out what are some of the most common of these questions. And we came up with about a list of 20 of the most frequently asked questions, the most common questions. And then each one of our campus pastors took a few of them to work through throughout this few weeks. So next week, um, as we continue the series, uh, we're going to be talking about the question, what does God have to say about singleness? A surprising amount of people entered that question. What does God have to say about singleness? We'll talk about that next week. And then the week after that is the question, is anxiety sin? Anxiety is incredibly prevalent um, as a mental disorder and just something we all struggle with. And so that's something a lot of people entered in. Is anxiety a sin? But today, we're working our way through the question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? That was another one of the top few questions we got. How could a loving God send someone to hell? Um, and this is really what is often referred to as a defeater belief, a defeater belief. In other words, a non-believer understands what the Bible believes about hell, and then therefore they conclude the Bible is not true. It's a defeater belief. Um, I remember having a conversation with an adult who's close in my life, and I uh, had a conversation with him, and he, he shared with me when I was really young, um, if there is a supreme being in the universe, then I don't see there's any way there could be a hell. In other words, these things were mutually contradictory, you know, the God of the Bible and the reality of hell. It's a defeater belief. And so it's really important that we press into this question and see what does Scripture actually have to say about it. Um, but as we approach this question, I want to sort of pull back and think about why this question is so troubling for so many around us, maybe even troubling for yourself. So perhaps no other teaching of Scripture confronts our contemporary culture more than the doctrine of hell. So in the modern world, we declare statements like, live and let live. You do you. Be yourself. And these slogans encapsulate the current cultural mindset, which sociologists call expressive individualism. Expressive individualism says, you live your life and I'll live my life. You do you and I'll do me. Don't let anyone else try to tell you who you are and what to be. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. Follow your heart. That all is expressive individualism. And this ideology and experience is most famously captured in the Disney movie Frozen 
and in its central character, Elsa. And no, I am not going to sing for you today. <laughs> Though it has been requested by many of you for me to keep doing this, it's not happening. So in the first Frozen movie, there's an important turning point kind of scene when Elsa announces that she is going to let it go. She's letting go of the good girl everyone expected her to be. She's turning away, slamming the door, doesn't care what they're going to say, let the storm rage on, the cold never bothered me anyway. And then I think, in the most important line of the song, she says, quote, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. That moment in the film is really Elsa's new birth into the modern autonomous self. She makes this declaration that she will determine who she is, and there is no right or wrong in this process. There is no rules for what she gets to choose for who she will be. This is the sovereign self. She will not conform to what her parents say. She will not conform to what society says. She is her own judge. She is her own rule maker. And the reason that moment in the movie is so powerful is not only because the music is great and the animation is phenomenal, the, the, the message of the movie is so powerful is because it perfectly captures this widespread, deeply held ideology in our culture, namely expressive individualism. And this is why the doctrine of hell and the biblical teaching about God's judgment lands so awkwardly on modern ears. Now, by contrast, when we talk about God's love, it's much more palatable for modern people. But when we talk about God's judgment and that we will be held accountable to his law, that we don't just get to live a consequence-free life of our own choosing, well, that just doesn't fit within the narrative of expressive individualism. When we talk about hell and that we will pay an enormous price for our sin apart from Christ, that just does not square with the fully autonomous sovereign self, a self that makes its own rules for who it chooses to be and how it chooses to live. So hell and God's judgment is offensive and confusing for many of us. It's left a lot of us asking, how can a loving God send us to hell? Now, one of the reasons why I'm trying to step back and think about the question before we answer the question is to help us see our cultural moment and our cultural worldview that enables us to really wrestle with this question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Because, for example, in, police, in places other than ours, in people with different worldviews than ours, the opposite is just the same. So for example, in the Middle East, in countries that are dominated by Islam, they don't have any struggle over the question of how can God send someone to hell. Just the opposite. They struggle with how God could be loving. Because within Islam and within their culture, justice is prioritized over everything. And so they're not sitting around asking, how could a loving God send someone to hell? They're asking, how could he not send someone to hell? Look at our world. Look at me. We're sinners. But for us, in the modern Western world, we're just the opposite. God is so loving. How could he send us to hell? 
I'm not saying either one is right or wrong. I'm simply saying we need to notice how our worldview shapes the way we approach these questions. We are not neutral. We are skewed. We are biased. We have presuppositions that we need to put under the Word of God in order to think as rightly as we possibly can. So as I've thought about and studied this question, I want to offer for you three responses that have emerged in my mind, three responses that hopefully bring clarity and insight and nuance to how we think about God and hell. How can a loving God send someone to hell? My first response is that justice demands it. Justice demands it. So let's start off for a moment thinking about the attributes of God. The attributes of God are his characteristics, his qualities. As I've mentioned, in our current cultural climate, people are prone to emphasize God's love, the attribute of God's love. You think about John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world. It's this famous verse worn by athletes on wristbands. It's plastered on billboards by the interstate. Or you think of the well-known phrase, God is love. That one is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It's just this succinct, simple statement communicating who God is. God is love. At the same time, and here's where we're trying to create nuance, even though we greatly appreciate the truth that God is love, we must also acknowledge that this verse doesn't say God is only love, as if that were his singular attribute. No, God has many qualities, many characteristics, and along with being loving, the scriptures also teach us that God is righteous. God is just, and he acts in accordance with his justice. So it seems that what often happens is we isolate and narrowly focus on God's love, neglecting so much else that God says about himself, namely that he is righteous and that at times he acts with righteous wrath. Furthermore, I think we can say that if God were not righteously angry at times, if God is not righteously wrathful at times, then he would also not be loving. So one author puts it this way. He says, quote, loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining that person, even they ruining themselves, you get lovingly angry. Loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of their love are they filled with wrath at times, but because of their love, they're filled with wrath at times. For example, think about what's happened in our own culture over the last several years with the Me Too movement. There's been this sweeping movement to hold accountable and call to justice numerous powerful men for their sexual transgressions. Politicians, executives, athletes, musicians, military officers, actors, pastors by the hundreds were exposed for abusing their power and taking advantage of vulnerable people. And as more and more of these stories have come to the surface, what has been our response? Nothing less than righteous indignation. 
Our collective response has forced politicians to step down, has forced corporate executives to be fired, has forced famous actors to get canceled, and I think we can say that the loving thing for us to do as a society was to enforce these changes. It is loving and righteous for us to say we will not tolerate this abuse of power and transgressors will be punished, period. So even in our increasingly secular culture, our culture that is committed to moral relativism and expressive individualism, even we can't help ourselves. By holding these perpetrators accountable, we're showing that love and justice can coexist. We're showing that love and justice must coexist. Otherwise, love is not really love if there's no justice. And so it is with God. Yes, God is love, but He is also just. And in love, He executes justice. So Psalm 145, verse 17, the writer says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways, and He is kind in all His works. So this word translated as kind here could also be translated as love or loving kindness. So in the biblical author's mind, there's no contradiction between God's justice and God's love. He is righteous in all his ways, and he is lovingly kind in all his works. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, CT, I understand that God can be loving and righteous, but is hell really necessary? Is hell really a righteous sentence? For God to hand down, why does God have to punish sin so severely? Well, think about it like this. Imagine that one of you guys right now stood up, walked up front, came up on the stage, and punched me in the face. That would be pretty intense, pretty terrible, definitely illegal, and you are going to get into trouble. Something like that happens. I'm also going to have an awesome preacher story, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it could be worse. Now also imagine this. Several weeks ago, President Biden was in Philadelphia for his granddaughter's graduation from the University of Pennsylvania. Imagine that sometime during that service, someone similarly stands up, walks over to the president, and then punches him in the face. Well, immediately that person is going to get destroyed by the Secret Service. They may even get shot but they certainly are going to get pummeled and dogpiled on. Now, assuming the presidential attacker survives that experience, who do you think is going to get the harsher sentence? The person who punched me or the person who punched the president? Each attacker did the same thing. They physically assaulted someone through punching them with their fists. It's the same offense. The only difference is the someone who got punched. I got punched, and the President of the United States got punched. And I am just a dude, but he is the commander-in-chief. He is the leader of the free world. And our legal system intensifies the punishment for an assault on the President compared to assault on me. The legal system provides a weightiness and a significance and a severity to crimes against the President compared to crimes against me. And this is not too different when it comes to God. Friends, when we sin against God, 
We are committing, as one theologian put it, cosmic treason. When we sin against God, we are violating His holiness. We are repudiating His law. We are rejecting His goodness. When we sin against God, it is way more significant than punching me. It is way more significant than punching the president because God is so everlastingly glorious and awesome and wonderful that when we sin against Him, which we all have, countless times, when we sin against Him, there are eternal consequences. So if you punch me, you may pay a fine or do community service at the church. I don't know. (laughs) If you punch me, you may pay a fine. If you punch the president, you may go to jail and pay a fine. But when we sin against God, the stakes are much, much higher. So I must ask, friend, What is your estimation of sin, your sin? Do you take your sin seriously? Are you humbled by God's holiness and glory? Or do you take your sin lightly? Do you treat your sin flippantly? Because by only and always focusing on God's love, sometimes we excuse our sin and give ourselves a pass just to do whatever we want, even if it's sinful. But friends, along with being loving, God is also righteous. In fact, as an expression of His love, God acts righteously. And we are going to endure divine scrutiny by His righteous standard. And so I encourage you now, let's judge ourselves. Let's Take our sin seriously now. Let's bring our sin to the light today in repentance and humility. Let's acknowledge before God that our sin is worthy of hell. Our sin violates His eternal holiness and is thus worth, worthy of eternal punishment. Diane Langford is a Christian psychologist, and she writes in one of her books that The significance of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin itself. No, the significance of sin lies in the one whom is sinned against, namely God. That's why our sin is so significant, because who we are sinning against. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, what we see in this first point is that the question should really be turned on its head. How could a loving God not send someone to hell? Because the loving God is also just, and the someones who are sent to hell have committed terrible crimes against God's righteousness. So first, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Justice demands it. Secondly, unbelievers choose it. Unbelievers choose it. So many people have this caricature in their head as it relates to how hell plays out. The caricature goes like this. God gives us our lives with a certain amount of time, and during that time, we have to make the right choices and do the right things, but then in the end, 
If we haven't done the right things, if we haven't made the right choices, God angrily hurls us into hell for eternity to suffer. And as our pitiable souls fall into the hellish abyss, we cry out for mercy, but God shouts back at us, ha, 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 too late, you had your chance, now you must suffer forever. But again, this is much closer to a caricature than it is to the actual truth. Because it is, just as it is just as true that we choose hell as it is that God sends people to hell. It is just as true that unbelievers choose hell as it is that God sends them to hell. For example, think about Romans chapter 1. It's this well-known and important chapter from Scripture in which the Apostle Paul is addressing human sin and depravity. And the apostle uses this certain phrase multiple times throughout his discourse. Listen to how he describes our experience of God giving us over to sin. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, and then verse 28 as well. Paul writes, Although humanity knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, since humanity chose to rebel like this, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And for this reason, since humanity chose to rebel against God like this, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Then once more in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So you hear that phrase three different times. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. So this is not God saying, off you go to hell, off you go to misery forever. No, rather, this is God saying, if you want to worship and serve created things, if you want to exchange the truth of God for a lie, if you want to live your life without me bothering you, then hey, I'll give you exactly what you want. Oftentimes, a similar dynamic can play out when we're young and trying to figure out the way the world works. Our parents, God love them, they greatly So I do believe I'm preaching God's word, <laughs> but I am not God, and my batteries die sometimes. <laughs> so 
It's a divine and human thing happening all at once here. <laughs> um, so uh, our parents, oftentimes a similar dynamic plays out with our parents. As it regards God giving us up to our stupidity, uh, our parents also do the same. When they're young, when we're young, and they are trying to lovingly warn us about the dangers of life. Um, maybe the most common example of this is when our parents try to teach us about not touching a hot stove. So mom is cooking, and the burner is hot, and toddler you is mesmerized by the orange glow of the heat radiating off the counter. Mom looked at us, and she can see it in our eyes, right? She knew you wanted to touch that thing, so she warns us. She tries to teach us, but we don't want to do things mom's way. We don't want to submit to her authority. We want to rule ourselves, do things our own way. So mom doesn't like put a cage around the oven, right? She doesn't like tie down our hand when she's cooking. No, she gives us relatively free reign. If we're going to touch it, then we're going to touch it. And in that way, relatively so, she gives us over to our own debased, immature minds. And this is very similar to the way God hands us over to our sinful desires. God doesn't slam our hand down on the hot oven and force us to burn. No, he says, if you want to touch the hot oven, touch the hot oven. If you want to reject my word, reject my word. If you want to live for yourself, live for yourself. And that's essentially what hell is. Hell is an endless experience of getting exactly what we want. Hell is an endless experience of getting exactly what our selfish desires want apart from God. Hell is forever living by our own word, not God's word. Hell is forever selfishly living for ourselves and not for God. And that is a miserable way to live. C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it this way. He writes, quote, There are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And then there are, then there are those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose the latter. So Lewis says, those are our two options. We can say to God, thy will be done. I submit my life to you. I believe in your word. I trust in your son. Or God will say to us, thy will be done. You choose to submit to no one but yourself. You choose to believe in your own word over mine. You choose yourself instead of my son. Thy will be done. In other words, Lewis says, no one in hell doesn't want to be there. No one in hell asks to leave. Those who suffer in hell don't want God's heaven because that would mean they'd have to take themselves out of the center of their universe. It would mean they'd have to get down off the throne of their lives and let God be God, but that's exactly what the unbeliever refuses to do. And as pastor and church planter Tim Keller writes, quote, Hell is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. He says, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into 
infinity. So Christian, that's a big part of our task in evangelism. This is a big part in our task in communicating to non-believers the gospel. Just as much as we are warning them that God will send them to hell on judgment day, we are also trying to open their eyes to help them see that they are already living a hellish life. Unbelievers are already living apart from God's gracious rule. They're already experiencing the painful effects of being handed over to their lust, their greed, their idols. So one of my seminary professors shared that oftentimes when he's sharing the gospel with someone, he'll ask them, what's the most important thing in your life? He'll ask them, what is the purpose of your life? And whoever he's talking to would say, you know, advancing my career, growing my family, making enough money to be able to retire early, purchasing a vacation house or whatever. And then after they gave him an answer, he would ask, now how's that working out for you? How's it really working out for you to have something else at the center of your life besides God? Is that thing really giving you the joy you want? Is that achievement really giving you the peace you long for? Is that relationship really giving you the security you crave? So you see what he was doing. He was trying to get the unbeliever to examine their lives, to reflect on their lives and hopefully start to see that they are already living a hellish existence. They are already getting a taste of the emptiness and misery of what hell will be like unless they give their lives to God. And if you are here this morning and you yourself are not a believer in Jesus, then I want to as well now ask you those things. What's the most important thing to you? What is the thing you worship above all else? What's the thing you most easily give your money to? What's the thing you most easily give your time and attention to? What's the center? What's the purpose of your life? And how's that working out for you? Does the money really settle your anxieties and give you the peace you long for? Do the relationships in marriage with family really give you the love and connection you want? Does the cottage up north really give you the fulfillment you hoped it would? And perhaps the emptiness and unsatisfaction you already feel in this life is a sign of the endless emptiness and unsatisfaction you will feel in the next life. If you're already feeling like, man, I was made for more than this. I was made for more than this thing, this person in the middle of my life because they're not working. I was made for more than this thing that I'm worshiping because it's not working. I was made for more. Nothing on earth can satisfy me. If you're starting to already feel those hunger pains, then perhaps that's a sign that you need to lift your eyes off the things of earth, lift your eyes off yourself, and turn to the God of heaven in repentance and faith and humility. Friend, you're getting a taste of hell. 
When your God can't deal with the shame that covers your life, when your God can't deal with the anxieties that drag you down, when your God can't deal with the fears that plague you, you're getting a taste of hell in this life so that you'll be warned about it in the next life. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, again, we're kind of questioning the question. It's not just that, it's, it's just as much that people choose hell as it is that God sends them there. So when it comes to hell, justice demands it, we choose it, and finally, gratefully, Jesus experienced it. Jesus experienced it. So this is, in a sense, the good news of hell. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus lived a life of perfect, blameless love and righteousness and joy. Earlier, earlier we sang about Jesus, that he is holiness with human hands. He is God incarnate. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. He is completely separate and sanctified from everything that is ugly. Jesus is holiness with human hands. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. And then, after living such a gloriously beautiful life, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved. On the cross, Jesus suffered the curse of sin. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus was condemned. He was forsaken and judged. The righteous fury of God was unleashed against our sin on him. In other words, on the cross, Jesus experienced hell so that you and I wouldn't have to. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the apostle says, Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. He bore our sin. He carried our sin. He was eventually crushed by our sin. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, the apostle Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for us. The one who was deserving of all glory, honor, and praise was cursed so that those of us who were deserving of condemnation would not be cursed, but would be blessed. On the cross, Jesus experienced the punishment and curse of hell so that we wouldn't have to. So I wonder if you've ever had someone that you loved so much when this person got sick or when something bad happened to them, you thought to yourselves, man, I wish, I wish that I could trade places with them. I know when my wife was pregnant, she had numerous nights of great discomfort and was unable to sleep. And then, of course, at the end, when she went into labor, a lot of anguish. And I was, like all other fathers, pretty much helpless, just there to watch. And I remember thinking that at least for one night, I wish I could trade places with her. I'll take the discomfort, I'll take the sleeplessness so that she won't have to. Maybe you've had a friend, a sibling, a child that's gotten sick and you've thought something similar to yourself. You love them so much 
you would trade your good circumstances for their bad circumstances. You trade your health for their sickness. Well, friends, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He traded his fortune for our fate. Jesus has the fortune of perfect righteousness and holiness. And through faith in him, God declares us righteous and his spirit starts to make us holy. But what does he get in return for these gifts that he gives to us? He suffered on the cross on our behalf. He endured the hell of the cross so that we wouldn't have to. And so I plead with you, I call on you, trust in Jesus. Trust in the one who died so that you could live. Trust in the one who experienced hell so that you could experience heaven. So how can a loving God send someone to hell? This is a really good question. And it helps us press into Scripture, but we also see that Scripture challenges a lot of our presuppositions. Our presuppositions about ourselves, our presuppositions about God. Because not only is the loving God loving, He is also just and righteous. And His love requires Him to act in justice and righteousness. And we have terribly, tragically violated His law, broken His commandments, offending Him, hurting ourselves. And so God hands down a righteous sentence. But hell is not merely God's just sentence for sinners. It is also the freely chosen fate of all who would experience it. And God simply hands us over and says, your will be done. But friends, gratefully, God is reaching out to us now. He's calling out to us now through the preaching of the gospel. And he's saying, there is another way. There is another way to truly experience life now and to avoid the experience of hell forever. It's by trusting in Jesus. It's by receiving his grace. It's by being filled with his life-giving spirit. And it's all because he traded places with us on the cross, tasting death, experiencing hell, so that we wouldn't have to. And so I appeal to you, give your life to him now so that you can experience the joy of heaven forever. I pray it would be so for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to the preaching of the gospel, and I will pray for us. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning humbled to reflect on ourselves, to reflect on our worldview, to reflect on our bias and the way we approach scripture and the way we approach questions. It's humbling to look at ourselves. God, it is also speechlessly humbling to think about your justice, to think about the fate of all those who will enter into a Christless eternity. God, we're humbled. 
Father, I pray that for any of us here who have an amount of arrogance, any of us here who think our sin's not really that bad, is hell really necessary? Father, I pray for any of us here who have that kind of arrogance that you would open our eyes as you did for Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he gazed upon your glory and beauty and holiness, he said, woe is me. I am undone before the Lord. I am broken. I am split apart before the living God. I am a man of unclean lips. God, I pray that you would give each one of us that kind of self-knowledge, that kind of humility, because of our sin before your holiness. So humble us, God. But Father, I trust that there are others of us here who know we deserve hell. We look back at our past, we look at the record of wrongdoings, not only over years gone by, but this week gone by. And we think to ourselves, surely if there is a shred of justice in God, then I'm going to hell. I am covered in shame that fully. I am broken and sinful that consistently. Only, only do I deserve hell. Father, I pray for any here who are so broken like that, that you would speak to the furthest corners of their hearts, that because of Jesus and because of his death on the cross, there is therefore now and forever no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Father, I pray that they would know in the depths of their soul that their sin through Christ is as far as the east is from the west. Their sin is in a bottomless ocean, never to be recovered, because he himself bore our sin on the tree, because he was cursed, though he was blameless. So, Father, may that gospel truth transform our minds, transform our hearts, and may we live with the joy and hope of heaven.